Cricket in South Africa is at a deep crossroads. There is a leadership vacuum, a pending financial crisis, transformation, race and social justice issues, as well as unease from sponsors and most importantly players. It's easy to forget the many lives that cricket supports through salaries paid to coaches, office, managerial and cleaning staff, and the many small businesses such as hospitality, food, cleaning and security services that the game supports. This week, a concerned Andrew Bretzka, CEO of the South African Cricketers Association, otherwise known as Stacker, joins me, Craig Ray, to unpack the drama that is Cricket South Africa. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, Craig. Nine months ago, we had your predecessor, Tony Irish, on this show, and that was after Tabang Moreau had been suspended or put on suspension after a whole series of issues. And then Tony and I were discussing it, and, and he said, well, I don't think it can get any worse than this. I think, yeah, we've reached a point where it's going to turn around. <laughs> and yeah, we are nine months later. It's got worse, Andrew. It, it definitely has got worse. Um, I said to someone recently that in December last year, when, when everything was happening, it was a tumultuous time in cricket. We were in crisis then, but I think there was quite a bit of hope. There was hope that we could get out of the crisis. There was good opportunity in the coming year to resolve many of the issues and deal with the financial challenges, which are immense. So we all look to that hope. I think what is frightening now from a cricket lover's perspective is there's, there's not much hope on the horizon if one adds in COVID and all the various other challenges that have come to the fore in cricket. So I think Tony, yeah, he would also, he would also admit it. It's, it is darker now than it was then. Hard to believe, but it's true. Let's just unpack for the listeners. I mean, people have been following this and people that listen to this are probably interested in cricket, but still, let's just let's just go back. I mean, as as Saka, you guys uh, were probably the first organization that really um, brought the issues to the fore through your, I don't know, spats maybe a strong word, but you're, you're quite public criticizing of CSA under Tabang Moreau and Chris Nanzani because of some of the things they were doing. Just take us back maybe two years to where perhaps these issues really started coming to the fore? Well, I think it's important to start by saying, you know, Saka, we're 18 years old now, and for 15, 16 of those years, we had a very constructive relationship with Cricket South Africa in terms of our agreements and how we managed our agreements. It was very constructive. When Tabang came into power at CSA, the relationship deteriorated. It's common knowledge. He actively undermined Saka, and a lot of that had to do with started around the compensation for the Global League T20 and matches related to that. But it, it all came to a head January last year when, when Cricket South Africa initially put forward that forecast deficit for the four-year period of, of $654 million, the famous amount. They commenced the process with us to engage with us on, on the restructure, but we immediately picked up that that figure was incorrect. I can, but I won't go into the details of, of how we got to that, but it was closer to a billion. And, and the relationship deteriorated very quickly when we started asking some very hard questions as to how you're making this calculation. And then CSA reached our recognition agreement by just announcing a restructure of the competitions, domestic competition structure, which required an extensive consultation process. We were then removed from our observer status on FinCom, on CricketCom, and on the Chief Executives Committee, which are board committees, which by terms of reference of the board, we, we are we participate in. And we addressed formal correspondence to, to Chris Nzani, to the CEO, to other board members about our serious concerns around the financial modeling. We had no reply. And ultimately, in about May, June last year, we had no alternative but to go to court. And the player's executive, we took the decision that we, we went to court and did an application to have the decision reversed. So last year, 
it was a very difficult year. We had no relationship with CSA up until December when everything changed. It, it's safe to say that there was a total breakdown in the relationship last year between, between SACA and CSA. If I could just come in there, I mean, that's crazy when you think about it. You represent the players. I mean, there is no cricket without the players. Uh, how can it be that there's no relationship between the players' association and, and, and the mother body? It actually set cricket back, if we think where we are now, relative to the challenges we face. I think we, we've lost a year. We've lost 18 months of dealing with some serious, serious financial issues. And, you know, Cricket South Africa at, at that time actively undermined us as, as the Players Association, which we had to deal with in terms of our, our members. But any working environment, if, if a union and an employer can work together for the betterment of, in this case, the game, it, it can be much stronger. And we have proven over the years that cricket is strong when we're working together. That is a reality, especially in an environment, I must just add, which has become very difficult in the last three, four years. And by that, I mean, the opportunities for players to play overseas and earn significant sums overseas without playing domestically, without being available for the coaches. It's no longer the old-fashioned way of you go play for your franchise and you play well enough and eventually you get selected for the coaches and that's your career. A player can now go and be a very good T20 player franchise level and get an IPL contract and not bother to play for the coaches. So to retain your best players in the structure so that you are a top international cricket team, you need all the stakeholders to come together and say, how do we make that happen? And that's actually probably been some of the most important work we've been trying to do with Cricket South Africa and succeeded in some ways over the last couple of years, keeping your best players in your system. Yeah, and and that will be a challenge, especially as there's no cricket at the moment, really. I mean, with COVID, that's the added double whammy to this whole situation. There's been a loss of tours, loss of cricket, loss of income, which is all compounding the problem, isn't it? It is compounding the problem. I think we've been slightly lucky in, in South Africa when COVID struck. You know, the Cricket South Africa will, will actually turn a profit for the past financial year. And one will say, how is that possible? And it's possible because of the exchange rate, because a lot of their revenue is dollar-based. And it's also possible because COVID had all those tours cancelled. If you recall, the approaches were going to go meant to Sri Lanka, the approaches were meant to West Indies. And by not having those tours, you save a lot of money. So I, I think that COVID impact will hit us later. Um, you know, it hit the UK in this season. For us, I think it's going to hit us later. Also because the general talk is that sponsorship revenue will be down to 60% of what it currently is. And, you know, there's rugby and soccer and cricket all wanting a piece of that sponsorship pie. And it's got smaller. And uh, we'll get into some of the more nitty-gritty, but, I mean, uh, the $654 million projected loss mainly based on the four-year broadcast cycle, which is also up for renewal. And in the current situation at Cricket South Africa, you've got no real leadership. You've got an interim acting CEO, which is ludicrous. Uh, You've got an acting president. You've got an acting CEO. Who's negotiating at this critical time? I would imagine the negotiations with the broadcasters are ongoing. Who's South Africa sending? to represent CSA at these things because there's been such a leadership musical chairs going on for the last nine months? Well, we've always said, and we said it last year, and I'll say it again, is we need to have certainty and consistency in cricket um, at CSA. And we need competent people to be in those positions with certainty and consistency because that then gives confidence to sponsors, to broadcasters. So obviously Jacques Fall 
And Kutari Gavando, we're dealing with that with international broadcast deal, so I assume she's carrying on with that work. But the, the world of cricket is a complex scenario, and that certainty that you want is what you really need to be able to sit at those tables, for example, at the ICC, and stand your ground when you're trying to negotiate your portion of the pie, um, be that in a broadcast deal or, or bilateral tour, whatever it might be. And that's the challenge with all the changes that consistently keep taking place at CSA. It undermines that consistency that you desperately need to be successful in, in sport. Yeah, and that is a challenge. But let's go back to the current local crisis, if we can call it that. So Tabang Moreau was suspended last December for issues of poor corporate governance. At the time, there were a lot of calls for the board to step down. Uh, the structure of cricket is such that he's a CEO and he reports to a board and some of the decisions he made were were poor and they led to all these incidents, you know, led to uh, disagreements with SACA, led to an issue with the Western Province Cricket Association over the de- redevelopment of Newlands, led to issues with players, led to all sorts of issues and the board sat by and, and, and let him get away with this. At the time, there was a call for the board to resign. A couple of board members did. Shirley Zinn springs to mind. Khan, I think, was another. And yet, the bulk of that board remained in place and steadfastly in place. Now, we're three weeks away, maybe less than three weeks away from the CSA's annual general meeting on September the 5th. And suddenly we're seeing a spate of resignations. Why do you think we're seeing this? Well, again, going back to December, we were one of those organizations that called for the board to stand down because I do believe the board has, Ubere Maesida is the ultimate good faith duty relative to decisions that get made. And I think it's almost impossible to say that the board weren't aware of, of decisions that would be made. And, and we brought it to the attention to a number of board members, our concerns. And that's why we made that call. You recall the Willerton Group did the same, Momentum did the same, I think Standard Bank did the same. Mm-hmm. And yes, as you say, some resigned, but Chris Nzani stayed on as president despite those calls. So now when we get to three weeks before an AGM when Chris was going to stand down anyway, and we have these resignations, uh, one of the points we raised in the press release this week is we believe Chris Nzani owes us all an explanation as to why now. Um, I don't think he can keep that explanation till after the AGM, because I think it's important to understand what actually has happened at board level at Cricket South Africa, that we have a situation where the president deems it necessary to resign. Obviously, there's a loss of faith between the board and the president, but what was the cause of that loss of faith? And then within a day, the acting CEO, who similarly is, was only contracted to 15th of September, in a board meeting resigns with immediate effect. And now we hear Steve Cornelius, another independent director, resigns today, Friday. So that can only lead one to the deduction that there's chaos at board level, a dysfunctionality that that is worse than it was in December. And, and again, in any scenario, that is bad for an organization. But in the scenario Cricket South Africa faces mm. relative to its finances and projected losses, etc. It's even more concerning. I suppose we don't want to become too conspiracy theorists around this, but there's also power plays going on, no doubt. There's people jockeying for position who want to be president, who want to be CEO. There's probably still supporters of Tabang Moreau in the organization who want to see him cleared. And, and there's others that are opposing it. So there's 
there's a lot of personal agendas, I would imagine, that, that are we seeing playing out, and that's to the detriment of the game. Yeah, I think the one thing we know about sporting South Africa, there will be politics and personal agendas. I think it's quite evident that those personal agendas at play. Jacques Ford has now publicly said that he had no authority in the end, so he, he really doesn't see any point staying. And one wonders how did that come about that he has no authority. So it's quite clear that there are factions within Cricket South Africa, that there are agendas within Cricket South Africa, and it's it's a case of playing the fiddle while Rome burns type scenario. And you know that's why one of our calls, and we got to get players to make this call as well before the AGM is until people within cricket administrators, the affiliates, the presidents start putting the best interests of cricket before anything else. We're not going to overcome these challenges that we face. Is there anything the players can do? I mean, there's no cricket going on at the moment, but could there be industrial action uh, from the players when the time comes to, to make a stand, or is that uh, is that still far off? I think playing cricket is, is far off, unfortunately, so that's not on the horizon now, and it's always a last resort to try and get to an industrial action type scenario. But I, I do think that we've reached a point where cricketers themselves are going to have to stand up and say, you know what, this is our game, this is our livelihood, and its, it's future is in jeopardy. And I don't say that lightly when I say its future is in jeopardy, because it, it really is in jeopardy now like I don't think it's ever been before. And that, as you said in your intro, impacts a number of people. And for us as SACA, always looking out for the best interests of players, that's a deep concern for us. And players are going to have to get to a point where they voice it themselves as well. Well, if we go back a little bit now, after Tabang Barrow was suspended and the dust sort of settled, Graham Smith was appointed as a director of cricket to handle playing affairs to handle players, and that was seen as quite a good appointment. It was criti- criticised as well, and there's a lot of issues around that. We might get into that. Mark Boucher became coach. They had a summer where they, they lost the Test Series, but they came back well and beat Australia in, in some white ball cricket. There looked to be a little bit of progress on the cricket field, at least, and there was a lot of hope that an independent forensic audit that had been commissioned by the Members' Council of CSA was going to expose what had been going on and not necessarily only to Bang Moreau, but perhaps other board members and other uh, people in cricket. That was apparently only commissioned in March, finally, but that's still five months ago. Mm-hmm. Five months on, there's been promises to a sports portfolio committee in June. On June the 20th, Chris Nanzani sat at the sports portfolio committee meeting and told them that he would have the, the forensic audit by the end of June, June the 30th. We now, today, we re- we're recording this in August, on August the 21st, there was a, a letter written by now acting president Beresford Williams to the port, Sports Portfolio Committee, who they were supposed to see today, that it's still with the Risk and Audit Committee, this forensic report. It just sounds like it's filibustering. They're just stalling on every opportunity to present this forensic audit. And what can we read into that? Because that strikes me as then there's a lot of issues in that that they're trying to hide or not see they're not allowed to see the light of day yeah i think filibustering is, is a good word to use there we've obviously formally asked the, the president for a copy of the report i know that some of the affiliates have asked for a copy of the report it now appears if that report from the, the letter that mr williams sent to to the sport report portfolio committee in itself says it hasn't even gone to the members so one wonders exactly where where that report is but the only deduction one can make is that yes that a number of, I don't know whether board members or operational staff were implicated in issues that the forensic was investigating. And, you know, one would think that that's a very important report prior to the AGM, mm. because that's a place where you're going to elect individuals to take this organization further. 
But if the report comes out and it eventually comes out, and I think it will, I think there will be a pie application to get that report. Maybe I think it's in the public interest. You know, we as SACA are part of the investigation, the report, we were interviewed for that report. So I think we've got a, a legal basis to request that as well. But if that comes out in October, November, and people are implicated then who've now been elected on, we, we sit in a similar predicament. The, the forensic report is it's interesting because the crisis as it was in December, January, February last year, I think one of the things the board did was, which many boards do, is they say, don't worry, we'll, we'll do it proper independent forensic report. And to a certain extent, that makes people back off because you say, okay, that is a good thing because it is. You know, independent, it's what you want. Um, not thinking about what you do when you actually get the report. So you sort of appease everybody at the time and not really realizing, oh, wow, this report, and, and we trust it's been done properly. Now it's got a whole lot of information. We don't actually know how to deal with this, this information. And why that information is so important, forget individuals, who might be implicated in it, it obviously must deal with a number of really critical governance issues because those were the, the bits and pieces that were being investigated by the, the forensic investigators. It was around governance, around spending, et cetera, et cetera. So there must be some really important information there to make CSA a better organisation going forward that needs to come out and needs to be implemented. And the delay, again, it, it does raise suspicion. And... Sadly, I think the last eight months have been a lost opportunity. It's been a lost opportunity to, to really get the report behind us, get the disciplinary matter of the, the previous CEO behind us, because those things, the manner in which they've lingered, have, in my opinion, allowed us to get to a point now where there's absolute political chaos, various factions within Cricket South Africa, where actually if those things have been dealt with earlier, we could have probably moved on from them. And just sort of putting yourself into Bang Maro's shoes, now, I mean, he, he does come across as the bad guy in this, and we all expect the forensic report to find some sort of information that's going to cast him in a fairly poor light. On the other hand, the guy, yes, he's been getting his full salary, so it's not like he's struggling financially. He's been getting paid. But but he hasn't had finality either, mm. this forensic report, the, the the issues in it. I mean, should we have any sympathy for Tabang Maro yeah, or... Or is, is part of the delay because perhaps he, uh, his tactics have been to, to threaten the board with exposure? I don't know whether that's been part of, of his tactics. Maybe it has and maybe it's succeeded. Look, as a, as, a, as a labor lawyer, I would say you know, nine months, nearly 10 months after you were suspended and you haven't reached some type of finality in the matter, the rules of natural justice will tell you there's an element of unfairness in that. So, yes, he has been receiving the salary and he's not hard done by that, but... You know, every person who's charged has got the, the right to some finality in the matter. And the manner in which this is, has lingered, and I'm sure his lawyers have probably been responsible for some of the delays, however it might be. But having said that, the forensic report was only done in March. And I think one of the, the errors here they made was they, they seem to put all their eggs in the forensic report basket. And so in other words, this disciplinary hinges on the forensic report, when actually there was quite a lot of other evidence that was in the public domain which in itself, I believe, justified taking some action against a CEO, not not just mention one, the the actual um, banning of the five journalists, removing their accreditation. I think in any other organization in South Africa, if a CEO did that, there'd be severe consequences to that. But everything was hinged on the forensic, and that ended up only in March, so it took longer. I think, yeah, it hasn't been a, a good process. They haven't 
cover themselves in any glory in that process. Yeah, and it seems like the forensics been kept away from certain people. I know Jacques Fall said he's been had no uh, involvement at all in the forensic as the acting CEO, and he stayed out of it. It was done at members' council level, which is the body of provincial affiliates that appoints the board, essentially. And seven of those members' council are on the board, which yeah. staggers me. Is that is that normal process to have that many uh, of, of one organization that appoints the other organization having such a, a vast influence on the board? No, I think that's that's part of the dysfunctionality of, of the board structure at Cricket South Africa. And, and that's been known for a long time. If you go back to the Nicholson Commission, 2011-12, that actually recommended the majority of independents on the board, I think it recommended a board of nine with about seven independents. Um, but at the time, there was, again, a lot of politics in the sport. And I think Sadcock got involved and said, no, sport must be controlled by the people in sport. And so it was the CSA then rejected those elements of the Nicholson report and said, no, we must have a majority of members. But one of the, the, the challenges, even when you have a call for a board to stand down, you then asking for it to go back to the members' council, who, who effectively it's those members who, who appoint their presidents onto the board. So it, it's not an ideal ideal situation at all. And I think that's been I think that's been identified as a problem within the sport the cricket sports structure for over 10 years now. And and and, and maybe maybe it's time to revisit that Nicholson report and actually bite the bullet and implement those. Yeah, absolutely. For the best interests of the game. And I see some other people have made that comment as well. We need to revisit that report on, on, on corporate governance. Well at least it's some sort of roadmap, isn't it? Yes. Mm, it is now going back to Tabang Moreau just quickly. Why? Why did he never have an internal disciplinary hearing? We've had uh, Corey Fansale have one. We've had Clive Eckstein have one. We've had Nasai Appiah have a, one. There's been several other staff members who have had internal disciplinary hearings. Why, why was the CEO not subject to that in in December or January? Yeah, it, it appears that I mean we don't have insight into those discussions that were happening at CSA, but it appears if they've they've gone on the companies. Act in terms of him reporting to the board, and that effectively, with within his contract, there was apparently a clause that said he needs to report to the board, and the board, as such, has got that power, which appears to be how they've approached it now. And he has now taken issue with that and said, "I should have been treated like all the others in terms of a normal internal disciplinary." So that's just another issue that they're obviously dealing with, and that that would have been on the plate of Steve Cornelius, that independent director in charge of social and ethics. So the fact that he's he stood down now. In itself, one wonders how that's going to affect that process. I'm not sure. I mean, those are some serious issues going on, but there's a lot of other issue, <laughs> issues in cricket, Andrew. Yeah. One of the interesting things that's been happening is we've had a few players coming out who were convicted of match fixing or brought on charges of match fixing, and uh, they've come out now and, and sort of changing the story on a lot of media platforms. And Saka's been named in a lot of these with uh, Tommy Tolikile and Alvira Peterson. Mm. And there seems to be some misinformation going around that Saka appointed Tommy's lawyer when in fact it was someone else who appointed his lawyer. You know, just what's your take on, on, on this match-fixing scandal sort of being revisited at this time, you know, four years later when these guys have, you know, been banned and in case of Peterson, he served his ban, he's he's free man at the moment. Where do you stand on that? Because they were sort of members of yours. They were members of ours. I mean, that was a very dark period, another very dark period in South African uh, cricket, remembering that there's, there's probably nothing worse in cricket than breaches of the corruption code. And a, a lot of the narrative that's come forth now over the last two weeks is, is actually just incorrect. And, you, you know, we've corrected it where we can and and put out the true story. I mean, and, and the story is it's 
quite clear what Saka's role was in it. And I remember it was a September morning where the whistleblower phoned the Saka office and said, I've been approached to, to fix, as he has to do in terms of the code. And the players are, every year they receive education from Saka on the, the compliance of the anti-corruption code. So he, he did what he was expected to do. We immediately got a hold of Louis Cole, who's the anti-corruption officer at CSA, and put him in touch with this player. And from then, a massive investigation commenced that took 18 months, actually, to its conclusion. I think some of the false narratives that are out there that, that do need to be corrected is Saka did not investigate the matter. Um, that's not what we do. We had nothing to do with the investigation. In fact, I only ever became aware of what players were charged with when it was later published in the press after the, the fact. What we, what we did say to the players who were being investigated and a lot of players were interviewed, was we said, before you go and meet with the anti-corruption unit, you need legal representation. We obviously, as SACA, we represent players in various aspects of the game, but we couldn't represent them in this because we had a conflict of interest. We had a player who'd come and told us something about other players. Yeah. So we said to players, find yourself a lawyer, and some of the players had their own lawyers. And we said, if you don't have a lawyer, we'll help you. And we identified seven law firms throughout South Africa. So one in Cape Town, PE, Bloom, two in Durban, two in Joburg. And if players then required the services of an attorney, we helped set up an appointment for them at that attorney. And then the, the brief went ahead with that attorney. Uh, as far as Tommy's concerned, his attorney actually was appointed by his agents, One World of Sport. So we, we had absolutely nothing to do with who he went to see. And the only time I, I got to know of who his attorneys were were when I received the invoice from his agents. Because what we did do was if players wanted it, it wasn't an offer, we assisted them with their, their legal fees as well, which we did. So I think it's it's unfortunate that these narratives have come up and they seem to have been clouded, the facts. I think if players are coming forward and believe there was unfairness in that process, then they need to actually say what they believe was unfair in that process and come with some, some significant facts because CSA had come out with a press release basically setting out how comp comprehensive that investigation was. It did go all around the world. It was the ICC were involved, the BCCI. But from a second perspective, when that ended, we actually gave a presentation to all the other players' associations in the world at, at the annual meeting of, of those associations. And we set out the presentation was, what do you do when one of your members comes and, and sees other members are, are approaching him for corrupt activities? And we set out how we approached it. So in other words, that we... We referred them to lawyers and we assisted with funding those attorneys, et cetera, et cetera. And we did special education for all our players. But at the end of that, it was basically accepted that our approach was probably best practice that would be followed by other countries. So I'm actually quite proud of how we did it. So it's unfortunate that the narrative seems to become quite skewed in the last few weeks. Very disappointing. A player such as Alvira Peterson has gone on Twitter and said there's new evidence and there was bias and he's going to show that there's... Uh, there was bias in his case and he's got new evidence. I don't know what he has. I've not seen anything as far as I'm aware. Nothing's been presented. Do players have recourse years after the fact if they if new evidence comes to light? And what is that recourse, if so? I'm not sure what that recourse would be. I mean, players are under obligation to disclose all relevant information. And at the time of their guilty pleas effectively on specific offences of the code, I would have assumed all information would have been given. So if there's additional information, 
then that should also then be given to the anti-corruption unit of Cricket South Africa. So I think that question lies with Cricket South Africa. If there is new evidence, how are they going to deal with it and how do they want to approach it? I mean, Gulam Bodhi, who was the kingpin of this this entire match-fixing episode four or five years ago, he's ended up with a five-year jail sentence. None of the other players have, have uh, had criminal offences they've been suspended from cricket. But is there a possibility of, of, of criminal offences and jail time for these players? The Hawks said after the Guru Bodhi arrest that the investigation was still open. So whether that means they can still go ahead and arrest these players, you know, that's a criminal matter. And it all stems from the Prevention of Organised Crime Act that actually has a specific clause that references sport. So Guru Bodhi became the first sportsman in South African history, sadly, to be convicted of corruption through his sport. So there is actually a clause in that act that deals with sport, and the Hawks have said it's still an open investigation, but whether that means anything will come of that, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, there's <laughs> there's a lot on the plate of the Hawks and the NPA in this country, so I suppose cricket might fall far down the pecking order in that case. Yeah. Andrew, just uh, from a South African Cricketers Association point of view, we are at a, at a really dark time in cricket, and we've discussed those issues a bit earlier, but... Do you see any light at the end of the Is there any, anything that we can be hopeful about? Is there any way that uh, South Africa comes out of this positively? Yes, if the key stakeholders and specifically those members, council, presidents, the board, actually start focusing on what is in the best interest of the game. We, we face forecast deficits that will cripple cricket in the next two years unless they significant changes in the cost structure of the game. We need to secure new revenue sources, be it sponsors, but you're not going to do that while the management and the governance of the game is in turmoil because who wants to come near you? So we've got to sort those things out and we've got to sort them out quickly to become attractive for new sources of income at the same time cut costs. Otherwise, we face the real prospect that cricket can become very, very small. Remember, cricket... In South Africa, has got three main streams of income, ICC revenues, broadcast revenues, and sponsorship revenues. ICC revenues are a constant, but will probably be smaller because of COVID. Broadcast revenues we know have reduced. And as I've already said, sponsorship revenues have reduced. We, we're not attractive at the moment. And so you've got to cut your cloth as well. You've got to get more revenue. But while you're in this turmoil, no one's going to come knocking at your door or or answer your knock. And if we don't sort those things out, then sadly cricket could become a significantly smaller game at a professional level than what we currently know. What is the biggest sort of expense for cricket? I mean, are, are players the biggest expense or, or where does the real money get chewed up? Cricket South Africa, I mean. If you think of a, a triangle in front of you and you put the proteas at the top of that triangle and there's the proteas, then you've got uh, six franchise teams under that. You currently have... 15 senior provincial teams under that. You then have 57 hubs. You've got 15 academies. You've got the whole development pipeline. That triangle gets bigger and bigger. And you've got Cricket South Africa's head office costs in there, which were a significant bugbear of ours last year. We challenged that in our court papers, saying that the, the, the head office racial excellent costs were, were exorbitant relative to the rest of the game. You can see that triangle gets very big. So it's a, it's a very expensive system. And you've got one source of income to support that, and that's the protest. That's why you have to have a strong protest team. Your team has to be one of the best in the world, otherwise you can't generate the income you need to sustain this 
this big triangle that I've, I've just painted there. So the actual cost of running cricket, Cricket South Africa's head office costs, we believe are going to have to be significantly trimmed. The restructure, you know, we've already said it to players. We expect that in the restructure there will be less players in the system. Um, so already, even on our, our current discussions, the system is going to be smaller. But if we can't sort out these forecast deficits and these deficits become realities, CSA's reserves will no longer be able to to fund the game um, and we will sit with a real problem. We know that the reserves a few years ago were close to 1 billion rand in cash reserves. Do, do you have any idea of what they have dwindled to in, in the past in the past few years? I think they've probably halved from that. You know, the, one of the challenges has been the cost of, of these MSLs and the Global League, which in total probably were about 450 million, those tournaments put together. And the idea was that those T20 events would actually be commercially viable to the point that they will then fund the rest of cricket. In other words, be another funding source for that for the triangle I speak about. But that hasn't materialized. And again, last year, one of our big concerns was we said you cannot go ahead with another MSL where you are losing 120 million rand. Yes, it's, it's good for players. It was another source of income for players. But our duty as a players association is not only to look at the best interest of players, but also the game, because we need the game to survive. Yeah, and and that is a is a massive thing. The T Twenty leagues are are the real cash earners for for cricket uh, around the world, and and the fact that our global league never got off the ground and was replaced by the Manzanzi Super League, the MSL, which is pretty much a domestic competition instead of being a, an international competition, and we seem to have missed that window now in the calendar to have an international competition, or is there still a little bit of scope to to revisit the global T Twenty league in South Africa? I'm not sure. That's a, that's a difficult question whether there's scope to be able to revisit it. The reality is you, you need your international players in there to get the international broadcast rights. For it to become a highly profitable event, you, you need that type of investment. And I think that horse might have bolted now. Mm. We, we're not in a position in South Africa where we can invest heavily into that. We just don't, we don't have the money anymore. So I, I'm, I'm afraid I think that might, might have passed us by. But having said that, you know, England are they experimenting with the 100. And they they put a lot of lot of eggs into that basket. So one has to, for the survival of the game in South Africa, we have to think out the box as well. We're going to have to be more creative. It can't just be businesses as, as usual. You can't just go through a situation where you desperately desperately rely on India to to come into to play in South Africa to generate that important revenue, which will always be important. And and again, at a strategic level, that's where a board has to sit down and say, you know, where do we go with cricket? And and until that board is stabilised and best interests of cricket are acknowledged, those discussions are not happening. We're too busy putting out fires. <laughs> Absolutely. So speaking of those fires, we can't appoint a, a permanent CEO at CSA until Tabang Moreau's employment is either terminated or he's reinstated. So uh, how important is that? Because you would you would imagine that ultimately CSA would, if Moreau is to be replaced, in a perfect world, they would want to advertise the job and try and get the best possible person for the job. So it comes back to finalizing the, the Moreau problem, if you like, uh, so they can move forward. You're correct. And our release back in June, when, when we lamented the delay, the six-month delay in dealing with the disciplinary matter. It was very much around that. Until you, you deal with the suspended CEO, there can be no certainty going forward. And I go back to my earlier point. You, you need certainty to be able to start doing the work you have to do. So I think you're correct. I think from a governance point of view, CSA will probably advertise for that. So if it does get to a point where there's a termination of the suspended CEO, 
an advertisement with GoOut, but that could also take a while because it's not as if highly skilled individuals in the CEO mold give two weeks' notice and come and work. It could be no, three months, six months' notice. So we could have this continued uncertainty for quite a significantly longer period. And, and then the sad thing will be we've probably be, had a year of uncertainty, which has plunged us into this, this chaos. Well, on that somber note, Andrew Bretzka, CEO of SACA, it's uh, been fascinating as always, but also sobering. And let's just hope cricket can somehow turn the corner in the next few months and, and, and the game can be saved because at the moment it's looking pretty bleak. No, thanks, Craig. It's a game we all love and we want it saved. And if I do believe if all the stakeholders act in the very best interest of the game, we can achieve that. But it needs to be a lot of work. Andrew Bresco, thanks for joining us on the Maverick Sports Podcast today. We love bringing you the Maverick Sports Podcast, which gives us the excuse to talk to some of the greatest names in sport. You can help us to chat to more world-class guests by reviewing and subscribing to Maverick Sports on Apple Podcasts.